everyone. This is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today, I have with me a pretty familiar voice with the podcast. My friend Jackson Swearer is here today. And I, I asked him to come in because I had been watching his post on social media. And he's, if you know Jackson at all, he, he is uh, not particularly active on social media. And he certainly isn't, I would say, giddy uh, with excitement on social media. But he was on a trip in Aspen, Colorado, and he was at the Aspen Institute's it's Aspen Ideas Festival, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and so when I saw some of these posts, I thought, well, I, I want to get Jackson in and talk about this. So thanks for coming in and visiting with me. So let's just start out with what, what is this place and what did you just do? So this place, the Aspen Institute, um, and, I, and I've got a, I got a little aid here to get this right. It's a, it's a global nonprofit organization that's committed to realizing a free, just, and equitable society. It's been around since 1949. And I believe they told a story that the very first Aspen Ideas Festival was really just a very long symphony concert. Uh, where I believe they played some Goethe, which will mean something to some small percentage of your audience um, and means very little to me. Uh, but they've been meeting since and they've had several festivals to talk about lots of different big ideas and bring together people from lots of different areas of the world, areas of the country and different walks of life from you know community organizations to politics to business and try to and you know also the arts and try to bring people together into conversation with the idea that if we if we talk to each other that's the best way to solve the big challenges that face our country and the world. So they intentionally brought people from different backgrounds, different walks of life with different ideas and ask you all to talk to each other about all these ideas. Basically they throw everybody together in this beautiful environment at this campus that they have in Aspen. And um, they just they had several sessions. Some were mostly panels talking to the audience with a few questions. There were some that were more interactive and more discussion among the group. And there were lots of different uh, tracks too. So I went to one that was primarily focused on business, but there was another one that was primarily focused on climate. There was one called beauty that was primarily focused on art. And there are kind of some intersections between the two of these two, and maybe we'll get into that a little more, but. Just for one example, I went to a session that was on NFTs, so non-fungible tokens and the blockchain and you know cryptocurrencies, but how that related to art. So NFTs and art was the topic of that session. So that was quite an interesting sort of discussion about how this new technology and, and its role in the economy and how that is intersecting with the art world. Well, you and I have talked a little bit about your time there, um, but, but I, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about, well, well, let me back up a little bit. One of the things that I'm really excited about is when I see uh, somebody from Hutch going to a place like that and knowing that there's a lot of good information there and then the idea that that information is being brought back to Hutch. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you, I guess, saw, learned, uh, and maybe a little bit about how how those might apply in Hutch or, or kind of what you see and, and how that could why this will be helpful for our community? Well, I'm hoping that at least some of the ideas will be useful, um, or at least things that I can share. So, you know, my 
my role is I end up talking to business owners a lot. So I, I think that there were a number of sessions on kind of what's coming up in the economy, different ways that we measure the economy. And to some extent, everybody's guessing a little bit. Some people's guesses are more educated than others. Um, so I think there was some great discussion about kind of, for example, um, one session that I thought was really enlightening was about managing amidst global uncertainty was the title of the session. But in it, a great uh, debate about working from home and hybrid work broke out. So in this discussion about remote work and hybrid work, there were lots of executives and people in upper management for financial organizations, big companies, and also some smaller technology companies. And there was quite the disagreement in the room about what we all ought to be doing about that going forward. Some folks were talking about the challenges with mentoring people and helping them to learn and come up through their business without being able to have them there in person. So there were some voices were really advocating for a return to bringing everybody back in the office or even um, slightly different from that, but related this idea that if there was a hybrid option that for them and their companies, they weren't necessarily going to tell people this per se, but it would give you an advantage for getting promoted and moving up in the chain if you were one of the people who came into the office, even if that's just because of the it helping you build relationships. On the flip side of that, there were some people who um, their reaction to that was to say, well, I don't really agree. We've been running our team fully remote for the last 15 years since way before the pandemic, and we figured out how to do it, how to train people, how to provide that mentoring. So it just requires a different sort of skill set, and you have to practice different things and know how to do it. But it's not impossible to do that. And then I think about how that relates to some of our local businesses as well. And you know, we have had some, some folks get into more hybrid work and different options where you maybe have to only come into the office two or three days a week. What's the impact of that going to be on our companies? Should some of our local businesses be looking into doing that more? Um, there are certainly advantages to allowing remote work uh, for companies. It allows you to massively broaden the pool of people that you can have work for you and you don't they don't have to come to where you are so for a pe for people here in Hutchinson now I love Hutch I want to live here I made an intentional choice to be here but this might not be where everybody wants to live and so companies you know if you've got somebody who's living in a New York or a Chicago or even in Wichita and they don't want to relocate to Hutchinson they can if they can work hybrid at least or work remote um then that allows them to work for your company and not um, have to move, which seems great. As long as you can manage that well was then the takeaway for me is that there are some skills that you need to develop if you want to do that well, some strategies around how to connect with people. Um, but it, it can work. And one of the potential advantages for companies that we discussed in that workshop was if you can have a more interconnected sort of horizontal network mm -hmm. of people who work for your company, um, meaning that everybody is on approximately the same level within the company, um, that's what I mean by horizontal, uh, in contrast to vertical where you have lots of people managing other people mm -hmm. and who are then managed by other people and so on and so forth up the chain. Well, you can eliminate some of the vertical hierarchy and have bigger 
horizontal networks within your organization because of some of these tools for connecting to people online and things like Zoom and Teams and there are lots of different video conferencing platforms. So I found that to be really intriguing as well, although then that that shed a little bit of light on why perhaps some of these upper middle managers at big companies were very uncomfortable with this idea that everybody might be able to be remote. I think they might see the writing on the wall that if things go that direction very far for very long, then it might allow some of these companies to eliminate some upper some middle positions, management positions. Right. Exactly. Um, some employees that cost the company quite a lot of money and whose main value is managing other people. And if you develop other school uh, skills and strategies for managing people that don't require that manager, then you can just cut that person um, and, and focus on having more boots on the ground that are, I mean, I think managers do work too. I don't want to uh, diminish the work of managers and their important role that they play in providing value to their companies. But um, but if they're sort of self-managing, then you have like more people doing the work that's actually creating value for the company, right? Correct, yeah. correct. That's that's the idea, I think. So um, anyway, so that was just, that's one example. Um, but that session was really probably, I would say, the best session that I went to in large part because it had such a good discussion among the people in the room. That was the one that the most of all of them got away from having the panel in the front talking. There was an expert in the room and a moderator moderating, but um, really most of the discussion was people in the room sharing. So that was great. Yeah. Um, so some of the panelists there, can you talk about that a little bit? Like what, what were some of the topics that were covered? I always am fascinated when you know, I've, I'm up at, you know, I've been at a number of conferences, too, and I'm always fascinated when they bring, you know, somebody in from, with like, like a, an economist who's diving deep into economic data that I would never, ever have access to or have anybody whose job is to spend an hour explaining this stuff to me. Um, so I'm always kind of taken aback by that. So, so what are a few other things that you, you saw there? So, you know, I'm, I'm not very good at you know, remembering all of the famous people and kind of thinking about who they all were. But there were quite a lot of very interesting panelists um, throughout the session. And then it would, and then it would be kind of neat because then you would kind of run into them and see them. And although I'm, I'm kind of shy and have a general attitude of not wanting to bother people in those sort of settings. So I didn't walk up to anybody and ask for their autograph, for example. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry about that for the Facebook folks, too. I did not have any great selfies with anybody, um, although I did get to go see a, a talk with by Bill Nye, uh, which was kind of fun as a child of the 90s for, to go see Bill Nye, the science guy. Oh, yeah. Um, but and, and Katie Couric is another one. There were several journalists that are on TV who were there and moderated some sessions. Um, so, you know, just kind of depends on how nerdy you are about this stuff, I guess. So there's Gene Ludwig, who's the chair of the Ludwig Institute, um, was there. And I think he's probably fairly famous in some economic circles. Oren Cass is another, um, another person who's the executive director of the American um, Compass, um, which is a more conservative think tank. And he, that's, that's a name that, you know, if you watch... Um, if you watch things, you might see NBC. If you watch certain things on cable television or read certain uh, parts of the internet, you might run across those those folks' names. I know so, I've read I've read several things by Orrin Cass. Yeah, yeah. So, and he was uh, you know just really that was both of those uh, panelists were in a discussion about ways to measure the economy, which I thought was very interesting. Talking about how we 
you know, we have these measurements like gross domestic product and the unemployment rate. And essentially those measures were designed a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, more than that in some instances. And while they're still useful, they're incomplete. And uh, they, were, they talked about some different potential ideas for how we might have some new numbers. I really liked, I thought this was very understandable to me and hopefully to others, an analogy to Moneyball. You know, remember the movie mm-hmm. and the, the book, which was about um, the athletics, right? It's the athletics, I think. I'm not the... Oh, the, the Oakland days. Oh, the Oakland yeah. days, yeah. yeah. So, um, and they basically the invention of sabermetrics and and new ways to analyze baseball. And the point was, you know, we didn't get rid of keeping track of home runs. We didn't get rid of keeping track of batting average, but we did invent some new numbers that we use to analyze players. So we still have the historical references. You can still compare a player's batting average and number of home runs to Babe Ruth. But we also have some more accurate ways to measure how effective players are. And in the same way, we, we probably want to keep these existing metrics for how we measure the economy. We need to have the historical reference. It's important. But we also need to consider some new measures as well. And I really appreciated about that panel in particular and a number of them that they there was a clear effort on the part of the organizers to include people from different points of view, different political ends of the political spectrum in this case, um, but just a generally different points of view about whatever issue they were talking about. And it's, you know, really, frankly, very encouraging and reassuring that there were great, robust discussions and opportunities for disagreement, but also, you know, looking for what are the things that we do agree about. And that that whole panel agreed that we need new measures and they actually agree in some substantial portions about what the new measures ought to measure. Now, from there, they may disagree about what we ought to do about yeah. that. But there was um, substantial space for agreement um, and disagreement created by the, uh, the just the way it was set up and the way questions were asked and the way it was moderated, which I really appreciated. Well, it, it does seem uh, encouraging that in kind of our current environment where it seems that we just by default agree on so little, um, to the point of not even agreeing on facts or what problems we ought to be solving, that there, there's something happening out there where we can bring people together and we can agree on some some basic ideas. And then, like you said, maybe the solution to those ideas or the path forward to solve those problems, maybe we have some disagreements on that. But fundamentally, we're agreeing, in, in, at least in this environment, people said, okay, we do agree with some of these measures. Now, you and I had a conversation offline before about this, and I'm wondering if you'll talk about this a little bit, some of the, what should we be looking for when we measure an economy? I mean, we had this funny conversation, and I, I have a story that goes way back about unemployment rate and how we always report the unemployment rate, but I had a dispute with when I was at the paper about how we did that because you could uh, lose a thousand jobs, but lose more people out of the workforce, and your unemployment rate would actually go down, even though you lost jobs. And I never felt that was a complete picture of what's happening in the labor force. You, if you're not showing the workforce and you're not showing the jobs both, and you're showing what's happening on both sides of that, um, and so I've I've always appreciated that idea that you need to look broader at, at all of that. But what out of the out of that session, what short, what sort of things should we be looking at? So a couple of a couple of examples from that session. One, um, and I think I think it was Orrin Cass who made this point was, you know, in our 
most of our current ways of measuring productivity in our economy, it would maximize our measurement if everybody worked zero hours but produced a, like more than enough for them and everybody else in their community to survive and thrive and have everything that they ever wanted. So in other words, if I could consume like a billionaire but work zero hours, that would be optimal for most of the ways that we measure productivity in the economy. But we just, we know that that doesn't maximize for happiness. Like mm -hmm. you're, you're, if you don't have meaningful work where you feel like you're contributing to your household, to your community, um, then you're going to be unhappy. I mean, I, that maybe I shouldn't say that quite so strongly and definitively, but I, I deeply believe that that's true. We need to have meaningful work. Um, and so that tells us that something is wrong. Something must be missing from the measurement if we could get an optimal outcome with something that we know clearly isn't good. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you referenced the unemployment rate. So that discussion was interesting, although a little bit troubling, I would say. So one thing we hear a lot about right now is that the unemployment rate is really low, historically low. And it's a pretty common part of our overall narrative about the economy that, you know, we, are, we may be coming into a recession here, we, we've got high inflation, but at least unemployment is really low. So that should kind of keep things from going too haywire is the thought among many economists, I think. And But they got to really digging into the numbers on this unemployment rate. It's like, well, the trouble with the way we calculate it is that if you only work part-time and you want a full-time job, then you're generally counted as employed according to the this measure. And if you're employed even all the way to full-time, but you don't actually make above the poverty line, then you're generally counted as being employed mm -hmm. for this metric. So, and it turns out that while the unemployment rate, you know, depending on who you measure and when you measure it and all of that, um, is somewhere probably between two and a half and three and a half percent, maybe four percent, probably not yet. Um, and uh, maybe maybe even a little bit lower in some parts of the country. And here, I think our unemployment rate reports as being very low. If you add in all the people who are part-time but want to be full-time and all the people who make under $20,000 a year annual income, then the unemployment rate is actually somewhere in the low 20s. So that seems to me to be quite bad um, and potentially an indication that our um, impression about what is coming might be being misled by inaccurate data that we're looking at. Now, I'm not super doom and gloom. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to spread uh, spread the bad word about the economy. I think we'll we'll get out of this, and there will be opportunities for everybody. And of course, I work in a space where downturns create and spaces, and they create opportunities for people. So I, I try to emphasize that. You know, keep our eye on the what we want and how we can move forward and have a strong local economy here, but. That said, I think there might be a lot of opportunities for folks um, in the next, you know, relatively near future, maybe a few more than some of the economists are letting on. So it, it, it occurred to me as you were talking that, I mean, that number is actually staggering. If you look at that and you say, I mean, that's those are the numbers that you hear from like depression era, right? 25% unemployment, things like that. And like I said, we don't want to necessarily be doom and gloom, but... Uh, part of the conversation that we we've had previously is that um, it it does sort of illuminate what you anecdotally hear or see in the economy, like the the the, the 
pure reporting on this is that unemployment's super low. Anybody that wants a job can get one, so on and so forth. But we kind of know that that's not the reality that we are hearing from people, right? They're, they, combined with like the recent you know inflationary pressure, um, people are working. They're they're working a lot. They're sometimes juggling multiple jobs and still not making the sort of money that that leads them to be happy, right? And I've seen reports too, not to digress too much, but um, that there is a happiness index, right? Where we take all these economic models and we put them together and we say, uh, what, you know, what is the nation's happiness? And then you try to rank that to see, are they happy? Because ultimately what you're trying to do in an, in an economy is have a population that is thriving and happy. Sure. I mean, I would certainly agree with that. Um, that general sentiment. I mean, the purpose of our economic policy should not be just to make as much money as possible. It should probably be to maximize for the well-being of the people in our communities. And to that end, you know, it seems like if we're if we're counting you as being employed and therefore not worried about you, but you make, you know, a poverty wages less. I mean, less than twenty thousand dollars a year is really not an amount of money that you can raise a family on. Um, that seems like we're we've got a problem there. How many days were you there? So I was there at the conference Tuesday at noon through Friday at noon. So it was two full days in the middle and then two half days okay. on either end. And then you talked a little bit about who goes, but tell me, like, who goes to this? I mean, you're you're here, and I, I probably need to back up and explain this. The space you work in is entrepreneurship. That's right. So the space I work in is entrepreneurship, and people go from, you know, people who work for government entities abroad, people who work for big companies, and, and you know, people who work, you know, for example, one woman that I met there just finished getting her MFA in creative writing, and she teaches creative writing at Queens College in New York. So on the flip side of that, I also met somebody else who runs an entrepreneurship center in Miami. Uh, and I met another guy who's from Hungary who works on telecoms in Hungary. So that just for the spread of, of different kinds of people that were there, um, panelists included, you know, current and former senators, um, and many and scientists as well, artists. So, and and another thing I should add, um, which I and we maybe should have led with this, uh, just in case people only watch the first two minutes and then they go look up this conference, is that I got to attend as a fellow. Which and what that means is that they, the Aspen Institute, paid for me to attend mm-hmm. the conference. Now I had to get myself there, and we had to pay for our hotel while we were there. But they paid for the ticket. The tickets are quite expensive, um, so most of the people who are buying a ticket are either working for an organization that has a pretty big budget and can afford to send some of their top people there, or frankly, for big companies um, for whom the, that's just not as big of an expense for them. So I would say the business community is probably overrepresented for that reason. Um, but there are also just a lot of people who have made their homes in Aspen who I think attend this mm-hmm. thing as well. And that's kind of neat. And some of them, we, I realized later, 
there are some strategies that I think that you can do. Like you could go to the conference a little bit on the cheap uh, if you wanted to. They might not appreciate me sharing all of those, <laughs> sharing the secret tips. But you know, listeners to the podcast uh, can get a little bit of insider info here. You can get a day pass to just go onto the grounds. That doesn't actually get you into all of the sessions. But a lot of the sessions are basically in open air tents anyway. Okay. So you so you would see people who had just brought a lawn chair and they had posted up the lawn chair basically right outside of the tent and they were listening to the sessions but they hadn't paid for a ticket so they still get the benefit of uh now you learning this information or hearing these speakers without having to shell out the the full all cost. the full the full pa- the full price for a full pass and you can get just a day pass too and like i said you do have to have a pass to get onto the grounds and they're not it wasn't obtrusive in any way, but they were pretty clear that you needed to wear your badge all the time. And I wore my badge all the time, so I never had any interactions with the people. But you could see that they had security walking around, and they would, they'd ask you where your badge was if you didn't have one on, and ask probably presumably escort you away if you weren't supposed to be there. Yeah. So, um, so I wouldn't recommend trying to sneak on to the campus uh, during the festival, but I would recommend uh, if you happen to be in the area and want to drop in on a session or two that you can just get a day pass and sit outside. Do they do this every year or is it? I think it's annual. Okay. Um, but don't don't quote me on that, listeners. It might be every other year or something like that. I, I believe they, and one of the reasons why I'm uncertain is I know that they took a hiatus with uh, everything with COVID. Yeah. And they went, they went virtually. They had some virtual things last year. And I think they've done a lot more in the virtual space since COVID. I think they they live broadcast a lot of the sessions, and you can go back and get some of the recordings later. So so that that's been good. But I'm not 100% sure they do it every year. Okay. So you went, um, and you said like companies pay to to send their top level employees. And, uh, and I imagine that the reason they're willing to make that investment is that their employees come back with new ideas and new insight, or maybe they made some connection between, you know, maybe they're a finance person and they made some connection with somebody in the art world and they didn't know anything about this, or they knew very little about this, but now they come armed with this insight and uh, from somebody else. So what, what, I mean, talk to me about what you came away with or or maybe and maybe it's too soon and you haven't had a chance to process all this. But how do, how do we start unpacking some of this here or have you have you got that far along in the process yet? You know, I haven't had enough of these debrief conversations yet to have any sort of pithy answer to that question. I do think that. One of the reasons why people attend and why they buy, you know, why they buy the tickets, even though they're expensive, is because it is an opportunity to get in a room um, and and also just like around, and just to back up for a little bit. I mean, the sessions were great, but as most people who ever attended any sort of work related conference know, the real magic is in the in between times mm-hmm. when you are talking to people about the session that you were just at and you kind of make a connection with somebody. And so I think a lot of it is an opportunity for networking. And you would see people who had a clear intention to do that. For example, you know, this isn't, so this wouldn't be something that I would do because 
my organization isn't trying to raise money from big corporations in New York and California, mm-hmm. but there were people there where that was clear. They had a clear intention. They were there. They were there to network, and they were going to try to have coffees with people who could make decisions about funding to help their organization and go ask people for money. Yeah, that was what they were there to do. Um, and other people are there to you know potentially to make connections to other business leaders. You know, I mean, maybe some people are there because they think that they might want to go get a job for the Carlisle Group or something like that. And they like to maybe see if they can run into somebody who works there and maybe get a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a shoe in the door um, or a foot in the door. I'm not <laughs> sure I've got my ADM right there. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of different reasons to attend. For me, it was really... You know, we're we're here in Hutch. We've got some great statewide partners, some great networks. So there's a lot of good information sharing that occurs that I have access to professionally. But it's still good to get out of our bubble a little bit and to just go see what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And one of my, and I think that will continue to bear fruit over time as I am able to maintain some connections with some of the people that I met. Um, just the. The one guy that I talked to who does a very similar work to me, but in in Miami, and his experience with that and running their organization, he'll be a great resource for me to check in with as we're developing new strategies and different things that we want to try to just say, hey, have you tried this before? Mm-hmm. Um, and what have you done on, you know, related to some other work that I've been connected to in the community? Things like what our community foundation is doing with impact investing and trying to take funds and root that wealth locally. So I met with another executive director of a community foundation doing similar things. And so that won't be a direct connection for me, but I believe actually that person has already got to talk to, or you know, just over email obviously, made the connection with our local community foundation here. So then they can maybe share some resources and some ideas back and forth. And so I'll... I'll Keep looking for that. There's a whole uh, LinkedIn group of all the fellows, so we can stay connected to each other. and And that was uh, that was a really great experience to be part of that cohort. Um, I'm honestly not sure what it would be like to attend and not be a fellow. I mean, that's the only way I've ever done it. And they had some specific programming that was just for us to help us meet each other and make connections. Mm-hmm. That I think was was probably really valuable. You know, as you were talking about that, one of the things that stands out to me is uh, I try to try to explain this. I've read these stories from like, you know, I've done some of this work where this character writing. So I look at these old historical figures in Hutchinson's history. Yeah, right. Like for talking tombstones for, for stage nine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the, one of the characters that I wrote, and I can't remember his name, but one of, one of the things that struck me was he was very intentional about going and traveling wherever he could. And he'd talk, and he'd see what people were doing in, in other cities. And then he, he would bring those ideas back here. And I, f- I feel like over time, you know, you, after, you know, city's been around for 150 years, you know, there's a, we're just kind of going on inertia, right? We're just, we built around an industry. We, and this actually came up at a conference I've been going to this week, that sometimes you have to allow a city to, uh, it, it has to give itself permission to think differently. Right. So if you're in a, if you're located in a rural area and you're built around ag and the ag industry is changing and you're still running your city like it's built on ag, um, it might still be built on ag, but it's not the sort of ag that you experienced 100 years ago. 
Um, you might be built on manufacturing, but it all might be advanced manufacturing now and you're not employing hundreds of people in a plant to make one specific product. It may be more robotics and robotic welding and things like that. Um, it, so this idea of going out and gathering ideas from people or talking to people in Miami, sometimes we get stuck in a thing where we're like, well, what happens in Miami doesn't really apply here. But there's some potentially very useful things to come out of those interactions and relationships, right? Oh, absolutely. And you never know what the what it's going to be either. So you might as well just sit down and have the conversation and then see what comes of it. Um, just listening to you talk about that reminded me about this whole other area of kind of sessions that I went to, which is related but different to some of the work that I do, which is around workforce development. And there are some pretty cool tools out there um, for helping people get up, upskill and get trained, things that companies can do to help connect their employees to that kind of training, to help train them into being able to be better managers or to have more skills. Other things that you know communities like ours could could work with partners like our community college, for example, to try to access some programs and some resources to get people um, some more skills, whether that's sort of technical skills as it relates to things like welding um, or technical skills as it relates to things like computer programming and, you know, getting people, but in, just in general, trying to take people from lower skill jobs to higher skill jobs. And there are a lot, there are more online tools for that than ever. And the conference uh, exposed me to a few of those different tools and also gave me a connection to people who like directly work on them and run them. Mm -hmm. So I can now go get the contact information for the person who runs that program. And uh, now I, I need, I still need to chase down a couple of those threads uh, for myself personally. And also for us here locally, I haven't even, I haven't even done a debrief with it. Anybody from the chamber, for example, or any, uh, anybody in work, who works on the workforce development stuff for HCC. Um, so I'm just now getting back and, and getting over the 4th of July holiday and, um, getting over the fact that it's 100 degrees outside and, <laughs> and trying try to get back in uh, nose to the grindstone on work. Um, but I think there will be some opportunities coming from that, too. Uh, certainly, at least at a minimum, some ideas for us to play around with and to consider. And one other thing I'll say on that that it was actually really encouraging is I'm listening to some of these conversations and they're talking about what people are doing on the cutting edge. And I don't want to you know, blow smoke. We've clearly got some things we could do better here in Hutchinson. It's not the perfect community, mm -hmm. but we do a lot of cool stuff here, particularly some of the stuff that the chamber and the community college and Hutch High have started to do around um, students, getting them the training that they need for the higher skilled labor jobs that mm -hmm. we have locally. Um, we're doing some really cool stuff here that is the sort of thing that people on uh, one of the panels that I went to said, basically, like, it'd be really great if we could get community colleges to do this. And I'm like, oh, well, that's good. Ours is We're doing, doing it. We are yeah. doing it. So, um, you know, so we do have a, a lot of cool things here. But there's still, I mean, absolutely some things to learn and some things we could do better. Well, but I think that's, that's an important takeaway, too. It's not always that it, it is good to look at the reflection and say, oh, we, we've, you know, the, the uh, technical and vocational school that the college and high school work together on. Um, we've been doing that for years and it's, it is very good. And it pulls students in from the area who, who then leave high school, well, sometimes with dual credit from the college and the school uh, or certification to go out and immediately start working. And that 
I mean, it is good to look and see that, yeah, we, we may have some gaps and we may have some things that we could do better, but, but we do a lot of things right, too, or, or at least recognize the things that we are doing right, and that's certainly one of them. I think so, for sure. I'll, I'll add, just to keep riffing on that, that sort of in contrast to that, and maybe, maybe trying to elevate a little bit of like how this is all complicated and the conference does a good job trying to, as one of the panelists said, he, he wanted to trouble the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I had a great conversation with a woman who uh, has been a big part of setting up a new high school in Slovakia where they teach entrepreneurship but also character development. And so what they're really trying to get at is how can we get people not just the skills that they need to succeed in business, but also how can we ensure that they're going to be good citizens Mm -hmm. too. And so there's this interesting tension in our education system and what we're up to in the education system. You know, are we, we need to try to prepare people for the real world and for the world out there. And so getting people on the job training and real world practice while they're still in school seems like that's really valuable. Um, I, I'm on board for that. I think we should do more of it even. But we can't lose sight of the fact that that's not the only thing that school is for, right? Our education system is also supposed to be teaching us to be good citizens and mem- be able to be members of our community that can contribute productively in more ways than just work. And so th- this person was trying to figure out how do we how do we do both of those things at the same time? And then as a, on a weird philosophical tangent, we shared a mutual interest in Aristotle and neo-Aristotelian ethics. So there was a whole dinner conversation about that that broke out. And now I'm not quite sure how I'm going to bring any of that back into my work per se, but it was a really interesting discussion. And it's interesting things to think about um, and to try to keep, keep that in mind to kind of trouble that question of how do we get kids the skills that they need for work? It's like, we need to do that. And we need to make sure that we're preparing kids um, to be, you know, good citizens as well. Yeah, because there's some level. I mean, this is a talk, a conversation that we have a lot uh, locally and in the state. Uh, how are we preparing kids for life? I mean, we have the, the conversations about financial literacy and things like that um, all play into that, right? Like if you go out and you have a job and you don't know anything about how not to be broke uh, because you haven't learned how to manage a checkbook or anything like that. Um, we're not really serving our community if we're sending a bunch of people out in the world without that knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, you need to, you know, as a going on 34 year old, I'm pretty sure I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but there are a lot of different things you need to learn uh, to do this adulting thing. <laughs> and um, it's, it's not just a, uh, it's not so simple as just learning about history and philosophy and politics, um, which is what I studied a lot in school. Um, but it's also not so simple as to just learn how to weld. Uh, if you don't have at least some, a little bit of different kinds of skills on different points of view, then you can't make it. Well, when you leave a conference like that or you come back, do you, do you find yourself reminded? I mean, I think you know this all the time, but when, when you are exposed to that so, so intensely for a period of time, um, also remembering that the these problems that we're trying to solve, we often speak in, of them in like very simple terms. Like, but they're they're complicated problems and they're interconnected problems. And um, you know the, the saying that you know the solution you create today 
creates, you know, the creation of the sailboat created the shipwreck. Right, right. right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So sometimes our solutions have unintended consequences. If we, if we plan ahead and we try to attend to them well, then maybe we can make sure that our solutions don't make things worse. But they're certainly not going to solve every single problem, and they'll probably create a couple new ones too. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. I think going to a conference like this helps you to think about those things. And then when you come back, I think the, the, we're talking about like how, how, how do we unpack the sulfur hutch. Um, but I know when I come back from a conference like that, I come back completely overwhelmed. I have all this information. I, I actually, usually, it's more than I can like store, right? And so then I'm kind of parsing it out over time, trying to process some of that, trying to remember some of what was talked about, maybe going back through the materials and trying to f- and figure that out and remember some of it and then think about that in terms of where I am back home and how that applies here. Yeah, so I've been trying to do some of that, and um, absolutely that's been my experience is that I just I don't even have it all out of my head yet um, in some very real way. I just, in this course of this conversation, remembered how good all those two sessions that I went to on workforce development were, and I don't think I've thought about those sessions since I got back. Um, and I kind of... Every time I talk to somebody new about it, I kind of do have this mental checklist. I kind of am going through different sessions that I went to and thinking about what was most impactful from them and also what the person who I'm talking to might be interested in and, and try to share some of those things. Um, and But there's just a lot. Um, and that's one of the, again, one of the really cool things about this specific conference that I really appreciated. You know, most of the time you go to a conference and it's about it's about a relatively narrow area of work or a geographic region. Um, And that can be really valuable, particularly from a networking point of view, because you kind of know everybody who's there is working on the same sorts of things that you are. But there's also something that's missing from there. It's sometimes it's the intersections, the things coming together from different areas, like the NFTs and art thing, you know, that's, that's an area where, you know, probably artists, most artists by nature are not necessarily super into keeping track of all of the biggest technology changes. In fact, I've even had some artists, local artists reflect to me that they feel like they have to stay a little bit disconnected from technology in order to remain deeply creative. And, but, you know, that is a, you know, smart contracts, the ability for things like for museums to know for sure the provenance of certain paintings. There's. Well, can you explain this a little bit? Because you did talk to me about this a little bit about how. Well, I'm going to get myself in trouble here with if there's anybody who listens to your podcast who really understands the way the blockchain works, because I don't really understand the way the blockchain works. Um, but. You know, so there's there's this new technology that's been developed that allows you to. Um, keep a digital record that stays affixed to something that you might call like a token um, that that tells you that uh, where you can track the ownership history uh, of of the of the token, and that can be done in ways of, with varying levels of anonymity. So then there are lots of different tools and applications for this. My personal opinion with a giant grain of salt, because as I've already explained, I don't actually understand this, um, is that this is an, 
this is an emerging area where there are going to be some new tools and some new technologies that maybe already exist, but that haven't really like coalesced together mm -hmm. in the same way that in the early days of the internet, we didn't have any idea how big of a deal Google was going to be. There was this like Alta Vista thing and then there was like Yahoo and then this like weird named Google came along and now they like completely control search and it's basically how everybody navigates mm -hmm. the internet. Um, or how Amazon just sold books. And how Amazon just sold books, right? So there are probably some things out there that are in the quote-unquote just selling books phase um, that we don't fully understand or appreciate how, how important they're going to be to our economy. And I cannot tell you which ones of those they're going to be. Maybe some very smart people can, but I would also suggest that maybe they can't because I don't know that people knew that it was going to be Facebook instead of MySpace or so on. Yeah. Um, so... But all that to say, um, so there's this there's this emerging technology that allows us to have a digital record that will, that'll stick with the token that sort of is is encrypted and can't be deleted and is separate from any sort of government entity or other structure that retains the the ownership path of of the token. So if you had a piece of art that had an associated NFT that indicated the ownership of the piece of art, then you could sell not only the painting, but you would also sell along with the painting the NFT. And then there's this concept called smart contracts, which as I understand it, essentially what that means is that when you do the transaction, um, so when you sell the the person sells the piece of art or the and the associated NFT on the secondary market, then the artist can be paid through the technology that the NFT is built upon, can be paid a royalty for that transaction. So in the art world, one of the major problems is that if I'm an artist and I paint something, then if, if I want to donate it to a museum, then I can only donate it to the museum and write off the value of the materials that I used to create the piece mm -hmm. of art. But if a collector buys the piece of art for, say, $10 million and then donates it to the museum, well, the collector can write off $10 million uh, for, writing, for gifting the mm -hmm. art to the museum. Well, this is sort of transparently inequitable. And, and also, similarly, the collector might buy a piece of art from an artist on the street for $100 and then it, think it's really amazing and convince their art collector friend that it's really amazing and sell it to their other, you know, some other third party for $100,000. Well, now the, the person who actually created the art is, isn't, getting isn't getting anything out of that transaction. And now whether... Should they get something out of that? That was there was some interesting discussion about that that went on in the panel. Some you know should the artist get a cut of that royalty? Well, what about other people? What about like architects and other people who create other things that are like sort of art adjacent that then get used and reused and reused over uh -huh. time? Do they should they get a royalty from that? Maybe 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 yes maybe no. There, so there's some there's some work to be done, some things to be figured out about that. It's not obvious. But I think there are some cool opportunities to, to look at what that might look like. And it could that could create a model where it would make it possible for more people to create art and to have a reasonable living and to be able to not, you know, sort of be the quote unquote starving artist and um, and to have that work without just like a whole ton of other like the technology might solve the problem for them mm -hmm. that way. Um, so I found, I thought that session was really interesting and, and had, 
and it was another one of these sessions that like had a couple of artists, one of whom did had done some stuff with NFTs, and one of whom who hadn't, who was there kind of as the foil, and then somebody who was part of a museum collection, and then somebody who represented Sotheby's, um, who of course they're an auction house; they sell a lot of very mm-hmm. very expensive art. So and so for the Sotheby's person, for example, the most important part about all of it was the ability to have the provenance, which is a, sorry, that's a fancy art term, which means you know for sure who painted it. Um, And that you can verify. You can verify who it it is who painted it. So famously, for example, Andy Warhol uh, paintings, the Warhol Society has quit verifying that anything is actually made by Andy Warhol because it's so hard to tell. Um, Oh, wow. And so, you know, that creates sort of a problem for museums and collectors if the official body of, you know, the official group that's supposed to say whether or not something really is or really isn't by this famous artist, they won't tell you, well, we're not going to go back and get NFTs of Andy, Andy Warhol stuff. But if there are, if people start doing that, then a hundred years from now, we'll be able to go back and say that. Now, of course, there's a pretty big asterisk on that because who knows how all this blockchain technology is going to work. If the whole internet breaks, you know, is it any of that going to get deleted? Can it really be safe? And now there are probably some people screaming through the internet at me like, you obviously have no idea how the blockchain works. (laughs) Uh, Which was the caveat. Which was the caveat on the beginning. Um, So I don't don't know what's going to happen with all of that. And I admit that. Um, But I do find it interesting to learn about. Well, and that's the thing, right? It's it's just, it's learning and it's bringing new information. And at some level, you you don't maybe have to understand the technical aspects of it so much, but to understand functionally how this might influence the world and how this might influence how we live life. And, you know, you're talking in a hundred year terms that uh, we don't know what's going to happen. But the, I mean, I just remember some of those early conversations around the internet. And, and it's so funny that you talk about that because I remember, I mean, I mean, there was a moment, there were some people who said, Oh, this will be the biggest thing ever. And some people really didn't see the potential of it. They didn't, they, you know, and then, and then, I remember the like long line of failed businesses. I mean, we started out like selling. I think there was a very early like pet food or pet supply store, and everyone just went crazy over it. And then within a few years, it was dead. But now, buying all your pet supplies online seems like a pretty good thing. Yeah, there's a truism in kind of startup business and entrepreneurships, which is that the timing has to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes uh, that's the internet was a good example of there were a number of things that were just a little bit too early or the my the myspace facebook example is a good uh-huh. one too it's just like myspace was there just a little bit too soon and it didn't quite grab in the right way and then facebook came along and is very similar and now that's one of the principal platforms through which everybody communicates in the world um certainly not everybody and even then you know these things these things have been flow every flow um yeah. But some things do come around and they stick and they stay. You know, we still have Coca-Cola. We still have McDonald's. You know, certain things come along and they're innovations and they, and they stick. Um, and it's really hard to know before it happens which ones are going to be the ones that stick, I think. But it's the only way you have any idea about that is if you, if you, is if you try to do research, learn, um, and, and try to find out what's going to happen. Um, and conferences like this are a good opportunity for, I mean, there's lots of, lots of forward thinking people think people who are trying to solve the, the big problems of the world today, um, in lots of different areas. Um, so at the beginning you talked about, um, there, you kind of went through the, the, the purpose of this, uh, the Aspen ideas festival. 
And I think you mentioned that, you know, the, the purpose is to look at having, uh, and uh, you might be able to pull it up, but it's a, it's an inclusive. Uh, yeah, so they say they're committed to realizing a free, just, and equitable society. And um, now I'm not sure if those are the same three words they would have used when they were founded in 1949, but yeah. that's, that's the idea. Say, say it again. It's so a, it's free, just, and equitable so I, and there's and they, they don't use the word democracy in their mission, but I think that um, uh, protecting and promoting democracy is a pretty clear part of their overall goal. And it's a, that I think it's fair to say for the Aspen Institute that that is a worldwide project. Um, that is not something that they're trying to do here in the United States. I think the Aspen Institute was. I mean, if you look at the timeline, I, I but I also just know from listening to them talk about it that. The specter of the rise of communism was a pretty important factor yeah. in the in the foundation of the institute, and so I think that's a that's an important part of it. You know how can and that's where we're trying to bring together these you know social groups, business leaders, you know art, politics, all of these things together, and one of the ways that they all meet in the middle is in this sort of big democratic experiment that we're doing mm-hmm. here uh, in in the United States. Um, so, the, the, so the rest of their mission is founded in 1949. The Institute drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the most important challenges facing the United States and the world. So dialogue, leadership, and action, I think, is an interesting combination of, of activities that they're talking about. Um, but there was a – see if I can pull up another quote here, too um, – I think this this was from the the closing, and there's just a quote from somebody who's um, I I I can't I'm not going to get her name right, so I won't say. But it's the person who works for the Aspen Institute who is like the person in charge of mm-hmm. putting on the festival, um, and they said that the best way to solve problems is to talk to each other. Which I thought was just—I mean, I believe that to be true, also. And you know, we have to—we have to take action, and we need people to take leadership. But dialogue is the first thing that mm-hmm. they reference, and I think it's important to try to create spaces for that dialogue to happen. And it's there aren't enough of them in our in our current society, in my humble opinion. And I think that the Aspen Institute and this festival are really intentionally trying to create space and sort of almost like force people who disagree with each other into the room together with a moderator and say, all right, you have to, you have to explain your, like explain yourself to the audience. Um, and, and it was very, uh, very insightful in a number of cases and, and conversations that just, it's very hard for us to have in a productive way. So one of the sessions that I went to, um, was about the, you know, all of the, not all of them, obviously, but all of the Supreme Court cases that the Supreme Court's decided in the last three weeks. And I don't really want to dive into any of those. On, on, that's not really our purpose here, except to share that they had somebody who represented sort of the more conservative group of the justices and somebody who represented the more liberal group of the justices and a moderator. And they all had space to explain their side's points of view and sort of respectfully disagree. And I think it's important to understand all sides of the argument. And if you can't have people having productive disagreements and conversation with one another, then it's almost impossible as another as a 
person outside of it who's not an expert on that, to be able to get both sides of the argument in a real robust and actually fair way. Because if you don't have people actually talking to each other, then there's nothing to check that they're just completely making it up, right? Yeah. If they happen to actually talk to each other, then they can call each other on it if they're completely making it up. And and they, you know, they were able to, I mean, they didn't necessarily agree about the decisions, but they certainly they weren't disagreeing about what they were saying about the facts of the matter um, of, of the cases or the facts of, of what the decisions said, for example, just like what do the decisions and the dissents say yeah. um, and what is the legal justification for that? So. You know, not every session that I went to was all about the economy and business. One of the things that I liked about the conference itself was, you know, they had these, I think there were seven different tracks. And um, I, mine, the one that I went to most sessions of, of was called Money. Uh, it's kind of a, a good catch-all name for everything related to business, entrepreneurship, workforce, all that stuff. Um, but there was not a money session every single time block that there was. And so I could choose, you know, do I want to go to something from one of the other program tracks? And in I, almost every single time block, there was at least two different things that I really wished that I could be at. Yeah. And so that's really fun, too, because sometimes you go to these conferences and you look at the schedule for the day and you're like, all right, I'm supposed to go to six things and two of these look good and all the rest of them look boring. Yeah. Um, that was not the case here at all. It was like, I'm supposed to go to six of these and 12 of them look great and I have no idea what I'm going to do with my day. And so every single day was an opportunity to, to navigate that. And sometimes I just let the lets a little bit of serendipity happen. So if I walked out of one session having a good conversation with somebody and they were going to one of the sessions that was one of the two on my list, I'd just say, all right, well, that's where I'm going, I guess, because yeah. um, we're going to have this conversation on the walk. And, and that was... So uh, I'll, I've been blabbing for a little while now. I'll quit and let you ask another question. But um, just just reflecting on on how much fun that was and how uh, fulfilling it is, really, to be able to be a part of and listen to some of these conversations. Well, I, there's a couple of things here, and I think we'll we'll kind of wind it down here. But the the thing about talking to each other, and it, it, because an important part of that is, and this is all folding into the conference I'm at this week that I just came back over here because I had a couple of things I had to do. Um, but the but the the whole thing about self segregation. I mean, we had a data guy this morning that was showing us this carved up picture of the United States that shows different areas of the country are self-segregating based on somewhat on geography, but somewhat on uh, ideas and, and, and somewhat on economic realities based on where they're at and how they make their money and what industries support that area. And, you know, one of the things that he discussed was that uh, this sort of self-segregation exacerbates this feeling of, you know, I mean, I think we all feel very divided kind of in this country. And, we're not talking to each other and we're sending people to Washington, D.C. And one thing he said is that problems aren't starting in Washington, D.C. They're, a, they're, a, they're, they're the embodiment of the divisions that are out there in the, in the country. And we're sending people to Washington, D.C. who we're not talking to. We're not talking to each other because our communities are so kind of different and self-segregated. But one of the things about talking is it, if you do it the right way, I've always thought is, one, you have to defend your ideas. Right, you, you I, can't. I, I agree. You, you, you have you, you kind of have to know your stuff if you're going to get into a debate with somebody. Um, that's that's true. Yeah, um, yeah, and you, and you don't have to do that if all the people around you say, 
Well, by Job, that's right. That's right. That's correct. Yeah, it's much, much easier to talk to people who agree with you um, and not get called out on saying something that's just not true. Yeah. The other thing is that I think is important about having those conversations is you you don't learn when you're not having those conversations, you're not learning what you do have in common. And I, I think we've always thought that, you know, you know, when you have those conversations, you will find that we have more places in common than, than we realize. So like you said, we, we have different ideas about how to solve those problems, but it kind of at the core, we all really want a lot of the same things out of life. We want the same things for our kids and our communities and everything else. We have different ideas about how to achieve those things. But if you can find some of that common space, uh, but you can't do that if you're not having the conversation. You have to be willing, you have to be willing to have the conversation. And I think a couple of things to build on that. So first, yes, I, I think it's right that you have to be able to defend yourself and also that if you don't talk to people, you don't get the opportunity to find common ground. I would go a little further as to say that it's really important that you try, you really have to start by finding some common ground that you can then build from. If the whole di- if the dialogue doesn't begin from a place of acknowledging what we can agree about, even if the agreement is about like sort of the at least maybe some rules of engagement for the dialogue, even but you have to start with something. And the other thing that I would add is, and this is why I think, you know, and I'm, I would include myself in this criticism. This is not, um, I don't think I do a great job doing this either. I think most people don't. Um, but it's one reason why I think it's very hard for us to get into conversations with people that disagree with us is that you have to truly, if you want to have a real dialogue with someone who you don't agree with about everything, you the only way to have that conversation is if both people in the conversation are open to changing their mind. Uh-huh. If, if, you, if you are walking into a dialogue and you are so certain that you are right about everything, that nothing that the other person says will change their mind, will change your mind, and they are also coming into the conversation with that mindset, then it is impossible to make progress. If you can't admit that you were wrong about something and change your mind when the other person makes an argument that is compelling then you can't have that real dialogue. And that's kind of a shame because I think that some of the best ideas come from moments in time when people who don't agree sort of fundamentally are able to come together and find agreement about something and then move forward and build off of that. And when we don't create space for the for that conversation and we're not personally willing to give up some of what we believe to be true to acknowledge that we might be wrong then we lose out on those opportunities to to build great things um, that are go beyond what we have now we're sort of stuck where we are if we aren't able to to do that and um and again, I think that's that's one of the clearly one of the commitments of the institute is that they want to create these kinds of opportunities, and um, there. And it's funny how, but then there are other agreements too, like um, just subtle things, like everything started and ended on time, uh-huh. which is one of those little things. It's like there's a, there's sort of a community wide agreement that we're not going to run. We're late. not going to run late because people want to get to the next thing and. 
we're going to start everything on time because everybody hates sitting there waiting, twiddling their thumbs for two minutes because one of the speakers is running late or whatever. So to the point that that would be almost a little bit annoying, you'd be like running across campus, you'd look down at your watch and be like, I made it here, it's exactly on the number, and then you'd walk in and be like, well, it already started. And it's like, well, that's because they started the second it rolled over <laughs> to 10.30, and it's 10.30 and 45 seconds, so you did miss half the introduction, sorry. Uh, good, thing they're, good thing they're in the app, so you know who those people are. Um, but um, it's I, I would bring that up because I think sometimes we think that our like things that we have to agree about have to be like, well, we have to find some of the agreement about big fundamental things, but otherwise we can't have any conversations. Like, oh, I mean, I don't know. I feel like we can, you can start a dialogue with an agreement. Like we're going to talk for an hour and then we're going to go home. Like, and even if we completely fundamentally disagree and nothing is going well in the whole conversation, we're going to sit here and we're going to actually talk for an hour and then we're going to go home Yeah, and we're going to be done at that time, but we're going to talk for exactly an hour. Um, and I don't think, you always need to have uh, much more than that. Um, some basic, some basic fundamental guidelines to start a dialogue with, and then maybe have the conversation begin from a place of, well, what can we agree to, and then go from there and see what happens. Um, yeah, and and many of the sessions um, were like that, and not not just the ones about politics either, of course, right? Like the I've referenced a few times the NFTs and art one, and that one had an artist who was sort of didn't seem that interested in creating NFTs for their art, but who was still there to represent artists who don't really want to do that yeah. and to talk about their point of view on the art world and how this new disruption might impact them. Um, and that was okay. Like they didn't have to be an expert on NFTs in order to have something to contribute to that conversation. They still had something valuable to add. Well, I think, you know, in these conversations, they were talking to people and, there's something to be said for understanding, right? Like if you can approach even, you know, so th that person may not ever make NFTs or they may not do this directly, but if, if you go into a conversation, even if, you're, even if you're not willing to change your mind, even if you're pretty certain, although I agree with you, you have to be at least open to that. But I may go into a conversation knowing that I'm probably not going to change my mind, but I do seek to try to understand why somebody has... And I'm curious about that. Sometimes I get angry about it, but some, sometimes I approach it better and I, and I look at it with curiosity. Why does somebody who lives in the same area as me with a relatively same upbringing, same economic realities in adulthood, have a completely different view on this issue than I do? And, how, and, and, and trying to understand what shaped that, because I... I think a lot of people, their their ideas are influenced. Well, most people by their experience. That's what shapes their ideas is their experience and and with life. So, if you can't, even if you can't change your mind or you're not sure that you're going to be open to that, at least if you can approach it with an effort to like, I really want to understand this person and why he or she came to this place. Uh, that I, I've always found that helpful too. I I, I agree with that. Um, this is a little bit uh, of a digression, but I, I wasn't actually from the conference, but I re recently learned of like a specific strategy that I, and I think I had known before, but it, I just encountered it again for getting, for being able to do that better. And this is funny cause I wasn't practicing this just now, but, um, because I was thinking about what I wanted to say next. So a lot of the time we, when we're sitting in conversation, we're thinking about what we want to say next and uh, a cool hack 
to get around that and actually listen to the other person is to have an intention to repeat back to the person what they just said as the first thing that you're going to say. Mm -hmm. So you have to actually listen to what they are saying in order to be able to do the thing that you want to do, which is to repeat back to them what you heard them say. And I, I just uh, I recently re-encountered that specific strategy, and I think it's a pretty cool little conversational tactic just for for myself to think about, you know, as I'm in a dialogue with somebody, particularly if I'm in a moment where I find myself thinking, oh, I don't agree with that. And here are the 25 reasons that I'm going <laughs> uh, to say in response to that is to take a step back from that and say, all right, well, before I think about the 25 reasons why I think that was wrong, why don't I first think about making sure that I actually understand what the other person is trying to say? Because it might be that the first 22 reasons that I had aren't actually relevant to the thing that they're saying. I heard something different than what they really mean, and we can get, a, we can get around a lot of our disagreement by just having a better understanding about what we really mean um, and what we're trying to say. I mean, certainly we all still have some real dis deep disagreements and people have fundamental disagreements to work through. And sometimes, the, you know, we have to agree to disagree for sure. But um, if we start from a place of understanding, I agree. That's good. And there's so there's a there's a small little tip tactic strategy for your listeners. There. I like that. And that's a good that's a good one to use. So I have one more question for you. And I, and this is kind of based on the. Uh, the mission statement there, where they talk about a f free, just, and equitable, do they say society? Or what, I can't remember what word they used. Uh, but, yes, they use the word society. What, what does that look like? Those, those are big ideas. Those are big Free, ideas. just, equitable. What does that look like? Oh, Jason, there's a whole other podcast <laughs> about every single one of those words that you and I could do. And you know that. So I you know that. this is, you know this is an unfair question. I have an hour for you on the meaning of the word freedom. Um, well, so, maybe we maybe we do. Maybe so we maybe, save maybe, that. Yeah, maybe we should put a pin in that one. And maybe the I think maybe instead of trying to answer and you and I can come back and do another episode and answer that. But maybe it's a question to pose to listeners. I think that's a that's a good idea, Jason. I'm I'm going to cop out of that question, and we should throw that to your listeners. What does a free, and just and equitable society look like to you? Um, and keep in mind, uh, listeners, as you are trying to answer this question, that the Aspen Institute's frame for that is broader than just the United States. They're concerned about the whole world, and. Um, and not just Western Europe and the United States. We're talking about the whole world here. And so what does that mean in that context to try to strive towards societies that are free and equitable and just? I like that. I think that having people ponder on that for a while and wonder what that might look like to them is, is, is a worthwhile endeavor there. And remember, they want to drive that change through dialogue, leadership, and action. So think about that a little bit, too. And what that looks like in your community and in your own life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on today and sharing some of these stories. I found, I found the, the whole thing. I remember your post out there. You were just you were talking to people and you're learning this stuff, and I could tell you were so excited. So I was very, very excited to get you here to talk about that and share your experience. Well, thank you for having me on. And I know we've talked about, obviously, I've hosted a couple of podcasts before, too, and we've talked about having me on before. And 
Um, I never really had, we, we always talk, it's like, I don't really have the right thing to come on and do. And then I did this and you were like, do you want to come talk about that? And I was like, yes, I do. It was a great experience. I'm really glad I got to share that. Um, and very honored to be selected as a fellow as well. Um, you know, really, it was a, it was one of those, like, do I really belong here? Uh, situations <laughs> for sure. And, um, I hope at least that both through the Facebook, through this podcast, and maybe through in a couple other ways, I'll be able to share some of it back to the community because that's really what it's all about. It's all about, you know, how can we locally try to put some of these ideas to work to the benefit of our community here in Hutchinson and Reno County. I'll be excited to see what you do with it. All right, cool. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. I'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast in Hutch possible. My son, Mitchell Probst, wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyinhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyinhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.